Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm your ho- host, not your hope. I might be your hope. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm your host, Sam Carroll, and I am joined today by Adam Jones and Dave Prentice. Uh, Phil Kirkbride out of action. Uh, it is the three of us today, all safely on lockdown, and we all hope you are well at home and not climbing the walls too much. I think someone said today it's week nine. How are we? Uh, how are we finding it, chaps? Boring, boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that much. Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? There's only so much nostalgia football you can watch before you start to get bored of even that. And uh, I've been watching everything: 74, 75 season reruns. 1985 Cup final I watched the other day, even though I know how it ends. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's frustrating. You know, the sooner we can get back to something resembling normality, the better. It's when you start watching your 2003-04 season review back that you know you're going to be bored. <laughs> I'll never do that. I'll never go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we will start today. It is a, a, a milestone an anniversary. Preno on this day in 1985, Everton. With the champions of Europe, we were we were ruling Europe. So, the, unfortunately for me and Adam, we've never had the chance to see the Blues do. do. So, talk me through that day, that game, and, and just what it was like to support Everton, kind of at that time. Oh wow! It's, it's funny enough. I got a text message this morning from a mate who just started by saying, "So, how was your morning thirty-five years ago today?" And uh, <laughs> obviously, that's what he was referring to. Now, I have to hold my hand up here and admit I didn't go to Rotterdam. To my eternal regress, to my eternal shame. I was a young twenty-something. Money was a bit tighter than it than it is now, and um, I just I probably could have got the money for it somehow, but I didn't. And uh, back then, you thought that it was never going to end. You know, Everton had been so good for you know sort of eighteen months, two years. You just saw like this endless horizon of Everton competing in Europe year after year, and you thought, well, you know, don't worry, there's always next. There's always the European Cup campaign next year. That's one to look at. Little realising, you know, so what was going to happen. So, and bizarrely, I'd been to Holland only about two or three months previously. We went to Amsterdam on the lads' we, lads' trip. Uh, the weekend that we played Villa, uh, we drew one-one. I think it was snowing as well uh, while we were in there. But bizarrely, we played Sittard a couple of days later. But we came back before the Sittard game. Like I said, early twenties. You know, so organisation wasn't a strong point back then. But the day itself. Obviously, I watched it at home on, on television with all the lads around. And, you know, so we had like a proper party. And like just c- c- certain things like just jump out at you. One was that we always knew we were going to win the game. Uh, we were just so much better than Rapid Vienna that day. They had one player, Hans Krankel, who had actually torn up the, uh, the World Cup in 1978. But this is like 1985, seven years later. So even he was like a, a bit of a shadow of his former self, but still dangerous as he showed when he scored the goal. But we just absolutely dominated them from start to finish. As a goal disallowed in the first half, it shouldn't have been disallowed. Mountfield was given offside when he headed the ball back for Andy Gray. Television later proved that he was onside. It doesn't matter. You know, we just went ahead, steamrolled them second half. 
And I remember there was one Liverpool fan in the front room watching it with us, a mate of mine, Frank Dixon, who jumped up and started celebrating when Hans Krankel pulled the goal back. He got battered, <laughs> as, as you can imagine. And, and literally minutes later, Kevin Sheedy scored the, uh, the, the third. But I always remember Brian Clough's commentary. Uh, Brian Clough was so complimentary about Everton, you know, so that day, and basically raved about us. And certain things you've forgotten about. I mean, watching the Howard's Way film recently, and that was at like 24, 25 past passing movement towards the end of the game. That ended with Trevor Stevens spinning on the edge of the box and pinging a shot that was saved. That didn't even register. I just, you know, it was such a great move. And okay, you know, so Vienna were a beaten side by them. But it was, it was just an absolutely dominant performance by a team on top of its game that knew how good they were and just knew they were going to win. And it was, it just seemed like the horizons were endless, that Everton were going to dominate for years and years and years. And all right, we did domestically, you know, so we could have done a double the following season. We didn't. We won the league the year after that. But Europe was snatched away from us. Uh, we didn't really expect that to happen, and it did. So tinged with a little bit of regret, really, a little bit of uh, poignancy. But that nice, it was, it, it was just, it was great. I mean, everything about that season I loved. I mean, 87 was great, but 1984-85 is by a country mile my favourite ever season watching Everton. It was just the team playing great quality football that knew they were great, and it was, it was wonderful. It, it, and you've touched on a little bit there, but Graeme Sharp said this morning, you know, Perhaps our achievements don't get the credit we deserve because football is about the now, but that side, people these days talk about the high press, the intensity we were doing that 35 years ago and we could play too. You know, he, he kind of touches on, do, do you feel the same there? Does that side not get enough credit for, for what they kind of could have went on to achieve and, and, and what a good team they, they just Oh, were? yeah, 100%. And there are reasons why it doesn't get the credit it deserves. And they're all off-the-pitch reasons. Football yeah. was in quite a bad way, you know, certainly in the mid-80s. You know, hooliganism was an issue, as we saw at Heysel. But don't forget, the Bradford fire disaster only took place like a couple of days previously as well. And so, you know, the, the focus on football w w was negative, really. People were looking at the problems that football had, you know, infrastructure of the sport, rather than celebrating the achievements, you know, so on the pitch. Because um, Everton won the league with 90 points that season. And that's having lost the last two games of the season when, you know, a lot of the team would actually gone on tour with England because it ended really late that season. I think Everton were playing right at the end of May. It was like May the 29th, May the 30th even. Uh, so we won the league, won the Cup Winners' Cup, you know, so lost the FA Cup final and still had league games to play. So like a load of players went away on a, an England tour to America, I think it was, which was before the 1986 World Cup. So we played the final two games without Peter Reid, Paul Bracewell, a load of internationals, and they ended up losing them. So we could have had 96 points. It was just such an incredibly dominant team. Scored goals galore. Um, had that ridiculous run where I think we lost on Boxing Day. No, we won on Boxing Day. So we lost a couple of days later to Chelsea at Goodison 4-3, a real humdinger of a game, and didn't lose a game again for four months until we'd won the league, until we'd won the uh, got to the FA Cup final, until we won the Cup Winners' Cup. It was just the most incredible run I think any team's put together for a long, long time. And it tended to get overlooked. I remember Danny Baker articulating it far better than I did there. Uh, at the end of one of those uh, Match of the 80s series, where he was sat on this like, a crumbling uh, terrace somewhere down in a football ground in London. And he actually said that. He goes, you know, yeah, if you look it up on YouTube, he actually says, under normal circumstances, uh, the talk of football would have been Everton's mad, crazy dash for the treble, that incredible football team. 
but it wasn't. Instead, it was, and then he referenced Bradford, he referenced Heisel, and that sort of summed it all up. It was a wonderful football team, but didn't get the credit it deserved because of, you know, sort of things out of their control, because of things that were happening off the pitch. And that's why I'm quite pleased, belatedly, that the Howard's Way film has been made, that we're making a fuss about anniversaries like this, because it was a special, special football team, and it definitely deserves, you know, sort of far more credit than it ever got at that time. And Sharpie also today said that there was some crazy conspiracy theories, as he calls them, saying that before that final against Manchester United, which we which we only lost, but people were saying that Peter Reid had a mad one in Chinatown with, with Derek no. Hatton. Load, load of rubbish. Well, Derek is convinced that's true. Uh, Peter's convinced it isn't. Uh, and, and, and I don't know who I believe. <laughs> no, I mean, he said that, you know, I think he said he couldn't go for a, have a load of ale after the game because then he get called for a drugs test after the other Cup Winners' Cup final. And so he was late, you know, sort of getting to the plane with everybody else. And Derek said that, yeah, we landed at Liverpool. We all went out into Chinatown, you know, so had a load of beer, had a legendary night out. And it really is like adamant it didn't happen. He said they might have had like, you know, a couple of glasses of champagne on the plane on the way home. And funnily enough, I sat and watched the, uh, the I think it was BT Sport, did a, a rerun of the 85 Cup final the other night. And we're in lockdown, I was bored. So, so I sat and watched it again. And Everton played well that day. I mean, I know Everton players say that uh, they'd beaten United 5-0 and 2-1 a couple of days later, drew at Old Trafford already. So they certainly had the measure of United. But they came out that day, two and a half days after winning the Cup Winners' Cup final, looked up to the sky and saw it was a really hot day. You know, so the sun was shining and thought, oh gosh. Then it went to extra time. And so you think that, well, okay, they ran out of legs. They didn't. They were the better side that day. John Goodman cleared one off the line from Kutterid onto the post. Andy Gray missed a decent chance first half. Everson were the better side. And it was just odd circumstances. Obviously, Kevin Moran got sent off. That sort of galvanised United into a bit of a, a siege mentality, you know, so that they wanted, you know, to prove that they'd been wronged. It created a horrible atmosphere around the stadium, you know, so the fans were really intense then. And Norman Whiteside, just a bit of genius, you know, so you know, to beat Neville the way he did, you know, from the angle in which he did. Just one of those games, if it had been played, if it had gone to a, a draw, finished on Saturday, nil-nil, it had gone to a replay, which is due the following Thursday. I think Emerson, given the intensity, that they were the original gig impressors. They, they showed such intensity in, in games. They probably would have, you know, saw Steamroller United again five days later. As it was, they didn't quite have, you know, so what it took on the day, but they played well. So I don't think it was a conspiracy as such. I think it was just one of those days. You know, I don't think Emerson's acted unprofessionally after the Cup Winners' Cup final. Unfortunately, the game just came too quickly. If it had been 24 hours later, maybe they'd have had a bit more in the tank. Who knows? But it doesn't matter because it, Emerson still won a double last season and still achieved great things. Yeah, I accept that if they'd have won a league, league and cup double a year before Liverpool, it might have made a difference. And maybe they would have been recognised as the great side that they were. In the, light, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so we still want to double that, yeah. And obviously, Adam, the, the Howard's Way film, which which documents that this team, uh, all, the, all the proceeds that go into uh, Everton's kind of new mental health facility, the People's Place, it has been pleasing for you to see, you know, a lot of the first-team players getting getting behind that. I think it's Andre Gomez even today saying he was prepared and to watch it. It seems a really nice kind of initiative from the first team. Well, yeah, it's great to see. And, you know, I think it was, was it Wayne Rooney yesterday? Was yeah. uh, that he was going to watch it as well. So it's good to see, you know, players past and present all getting involved in. You know, I've I've seen the film. I think it's an absolutely fantastic film from somebody who's not who wasn't alive at the time. It's it's really interesting for us to go back and watch that and you know watch as Preno says a team who just believed that they weren't going to lose any game would just go into every game thinking yeah we're going to win this. Like I remember 
when I was first going to watch Everton games, my dad was always used to say this to me, like when I when I was watching the side in the eighties, they just never believed that they were going to lose, and it's it's really interesting to hear that from the players themselves. So you know, getting all all the current first teamers involved, you know, maybe it might generate some sort of similar attitude amongst them. Like we can only hope. And to to stick with you then, Adam, I know it was it was discussed a little bit uh, in the podcast earlier this week, which hopefully everyone's listened to, but. Since then, Oliver Darden, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, released a statement uh, to, to switch to kind of Premier League action, which says that the government has opened the door for competitive football to return safely in June. With everything that's happened this week and, and since the last podcast, do, do you now think we're starting? You know, obviously, the Bundesliga begins again this weekend. Do you now think we're starting to edge closer to a return to football? Is that something you think is viable behind, behind closed doors, I'd, I'd assume, next month? whether I think it's viable or not is, you know, something that we talked about on the last podcast. And I think I made myself quite clear then that I just think, I think it's far too soon to be able to bring football back in this country. I think that the situation in the Bundesliga and the situation here is so completely different. Germany is so much further down their respective curve than us. It just, it just doesn't feel like the right time to be bringing back uh, the Premier League at this point. But, you know, with the, with the statements that, from Oliver Dowden uh, yesterday, he said there was a public meeting between the government and uh, the EFL and the Premier League. Uh, the EFL meeting, of course, again today over Leagues One and Two. But uh, yeah, it, it, it does just feel like the ball is rolling. And while I think that June might still be a bit ambitious, uh, considering where we currently are, the, I, I still think football probably will come back this season at some point. It, it, it's just really. You, you just can't tell what's going to happen in the future. Like you, you, we can't we can't sit here and put a, a current date on it. You know the players still need to agree a way that they can come back into training, whether that be in like little groups of two, three, four, or whatever. You know they need to get back onto well, Everton need to get back into Finch Farm before they can really get yeah. back on the pitch. So yeah, there's there's still so many obstacles that we've got to try and dodge, and you know we've got to try and get through until like football can come back. So it's I still. Personally, June is pretty ambitious to be bringing football back. But, you know, it, as I say, it does seem like the ball is rolling now. And obviously, Preno, you know, you've, for all the years you've been watching football, you've, you've never experienced anything like this. And as Adam's touched upon there, you know, even when the players got to train, that's only the first part, isn't it? How difficult do you think it's going to be for them to, to get up to speed in what's probably only going to be a, a turnaround of a, a couple of weeks? It's going to be strange. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm on the fence a little bit with this one. I mean, I read quite a persuasive argument from Matthew Syed in the Times yesterday where he talked about um, is the possibility of people losing their lives a risk worth taking uh, to bring football back and then argued, yes, I think it is. And his argument was that, you know, other industries are trying to get back to work, the construction industry, you know, some manufacturing industries. Um, we've got to try and approach some degree of normality uh, as quickly as possible. And obviously, you know, so football can you know, sort of lift the spirit of the nation, even if it is behind closed doors. The counter to that, of course, is whether you think that football is as essential as construction or, you know, so manufacturing. Clearly it isn't. Um, but, you know, is the, the spirit of the nation being lifted something that we feel, you know, so footballers should be morally obliged to, you know, so to do? I don't know. It's a very, very tough one. I mean, mid-June when they're talking about it's still a month away yet, you know, so hopefully the curve will be well and truly flattened by then and heading in the downward direction. We don't know. 
uh, if these changes the government have been introducing very, very fractionally now see a rise in, um, in coronavirus cases, well, you can forget it, you know, so it's not going to happen at all. So we have to wait and see. Um, if they do come back in mid-June, yeah, it's going to be strange because, you know, the, the circumstances in which players can train are going to be very artificial. You know, they're going to be told to try and, you know, sort of keep as much as possible between themselves they're going to be tested regularly can they be a hundred percent match fit and intense enough to play the quality of football they were playing before lockdown probably not and in the games themselves you know what are they going to be like uh, you know so will players be able to concentrate and focus as much as they would do normally without that backdrop of a crowd you know so around them are they going to be like glorified training sessions uh, we don't know personally i think we've got to try i think you know we've got to monitor what happens in the bundesliga this weekend if that goes off, you know, so according to plan. And the measures they've taken are quite ridiculous, to be honest. I mean, substitutes will be sitting, you know, so two and three metres apart. Team buses, they're having three team coaches for every team. So the players can sit, you know, so three and four rows apart from each other. I mean, they are extreme levels of social distancing they're taking. But then when they're playing, you, know, you can't keep social distancing from players, you know, so when you're playing football against them, much as some of our defenders might have done at set pieces this season, uh, you, know, so you, you can't do that. So it is, it's a very, very strange you know, sort of situation we find ourselves in. And like you say, something I've never lived through previously. It's completely bizarre, completely strange. And we've just got to take baby steps, bit by bit, and just see how it goes. Keep an eye on the Bundesliga, see how that goes this weekend. Get the players back in training as best we can. You know, so see what their fitness levels are like, and then maybe just maybe think about you know, so trying to make a tentative return sometime in the middle of the summer. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Is it odd, Adam? Obviously, you know that Chelsea game, which somehow was the last time we've all seen Everton turn out, was was our last game, and I think this weekend would have been. The last game of the season, you know, we would have had Bournemouth coming to Goodison Park. It's difficult, isn't it, almost to think that if football does return and they do see out the season, Evan have still got to play a Merseyside derby and, and catch up with, with all these games. Is it is it difficult in terms of, you know, thinking about, is it hard to even think about any of these matches? Do we, do we still just have to put everything on the back burner until we know and the government and the Premier League and health officials have agreed that it can come back? So, no, I think... You know, if you were if you were part of the Everton team, then you'd you'd probably want to be preparing for these matches uh, as early as possible. So I've I've got no doubt in my mind that you know there will be some sort of preparations going into you know the yeah. potential of play playing Liverpool soon. You know, it could be within a month's time, within two months' time. You know, it you know it seems like all logic would dictate that Everton's first game back after this break would be a Merseyside derby against Liverpool, which will be probably one of the strangest Merseyside derbies that will yeah. ever be played. Uh, and it, it, it is just going to be so interesting to see how football comes back because, you know, this has been, what, two months now that football has been suspended for? Probably, well, over two months since the last time ever played, of course. You know, that's that's essentially a whole summer off. That's probably over a whole summer off. And you'll be coming back into this without any sort of pre-season training. And, you know, we've seen how, you know, how badly... 
a poor pre-season can affect a team's start to a season. So having no pre-season at all, it, it just it, it just boggles the mind, really. I, I have no idea how teams are going to react to this. And then, as you say, Everton in particular, in terms of their fixtures, we've got Liverpool still to come, Leicester, Tottenham, Wolves, yeah. Sheffield United. These aren't exactly easy games to have to play from now until the end of the season as well. So, you know, I, th- I think, you know, going back to your question, I'd, I'd have to say that there must be some preparation going into these games. You've got to... You've got to play as if they are going to be played until we we are told definitively that it's not. Yeah, that uh, that fixture list worried me when I saw it the other day because uh, you look at Everton's position and you know so safely ensconced in mid table. I think we're only is it nine points clear of you know so the bottom three. And you know, okay, you know, in a normal circumstances, you wouldn't imagine there'd be any possibility of Everton getting dragged down into that. But these aren't normal circumstances. Maybe it's just a bit of Evertonian fatalism, you know, sort of work here. You don't know. But you know, a Merseyside derby without the backing of the home fans behind us, you know, which has made such a difference at Goodison in the last few years. Um, you know, trips to Tottenham, Sheffield United, you know, so difficult games against sides that you know were playing well prior to the to the lockdown. You know, lose them, and who knows? You know, just it, it's a very, very weird and strange situation. I accept that why the authorities want to play the league to a conclusion, but equally, it's it, it's it's strange, and it does it leaves me a little bit nervous about the whole situation. Some some of your good mates have uh, uh, have played Preno as well. Do you think when you get used to that feeling of playing in front of thirty, forty plus thousand fans a week, like if you take that away, you know, if if Everton and Liverpool do play each other in a stadium where what a couple of hundred television people and medical staff and, and journalists and stuff. Do you think that could impact on, on performance? It's got to, hasn't it? It's got to impact on certainly the home side's performances. Well, and in fact, impact on both teams' performances, you would imagine. It, it, it puts a completely different dynamic at work then. It's about how the players can prepare best for a situation like that. And, you know, you look at the levels that, you know, so Jurgen Klopp's gone to across the park to try and get, you know, so every infinitesimus can't even say the word, you know, so every fractional you know, percentage point of performance out of his team to the point whereby he even employed a throw-in coach. You would, yeah. imagine, you would imagine that they would take every single you know, step imaginable to ensure that, you know, so their players are as well prepared to perform in that arena as, as they can be. And so Everton have to be as professional themselves and we have to be as switched on and as prepared as possible. You can't leave anything to, to, you know, the professional footballers, you can't leave anything, you know, so you've got to basically be absolutely ready to play whatever the circumstances are. And it's strange, yeah, you are going to feel maybe not quite as switched on as you would be normally. You'd be preparing for a training session rather than a match. There'd be a few butterflies, obviously, because, you know, it's a football match and you'd be seeing the opposition there against you. But you won't have the, the same dynamics at play. And so, yeah, there, there will be an edge, you know, so taken off. And how that will affect teams, I don't know. Maybe it'll take an edge off Liverpool, you know, so their, their famous pressing game might be affected by the fact that they haven't got the crowd behind them. We just don't know. Uh, it's a complete quandary. It's, it's an arena which we've never really witnessed before. And lots of strange results could happen as a result. Adam, moving on a little bit then, we, we've been running a, a, a series on, on young players this week and I thought you, you picked up on a couple of, of interesting young lads and, and the first one, you know, when we do get back to football and get back to next season, obviously with the under-23 season now cancelled, Dennis and Deneran, you know, haven't paid a <coughs> relatively decent fee to, to sign him from Fulham as a, as a young man. You've watched him quite a few times this season mm-hmm. and pointed out about how, you know, we signed him as a striker, then he was a centre-mid, now he's impressing on the wing, what do you think has to come next for him with, with 12 months left on the contract? What would you hope that the plan from Marcel Brands would be? 
you'd have to think that the plan has to be to get him first team fall at some point. I think I've noticed uh, a lot of times when I've been watching the under-23s this year that Adenaran just seems to be that extra yard quicker than everyone else in terms of, you know, with the ball at his feet, with, you know, his physical speed and with his speed of thought as well. And, you know, that that has come with, you know, alongside him training with the first team quite a few times this year. So you can yeah. see that that's having a, quite the effect on him. And then you see uh, Everton playing against first team sides, you know, like Burton Albion uh, earlier this year, the 23s. And uh, Adenaran, you know, completely held his own in that game. I think he was one of the best best players on the pitch that night. So I'd, I'd have to say getting him first team football has to be the priority. Now, whether that's going to be on loan or whether, you know, they can find a way to push him forward into the Everton first team, uh, it seems like a loan is going to be the more likely of those two scenarios. Uh, but he's, he's one of a number of under-23s that, that we've seen over the last couple of years that have, you know, done fantastically well for Unsworth side, you know, Denner in particular. You know, he was so good at centre-mid. He moved out onto the wing when the likes of uh, Broadhead and Bowler went out on loan themselves and Unzi found himself a little bit short in that area. And he's, his attitude has just been absolutely fantastic. His performances have been great. And yeah, he, I, I feel like he's just that little bit better than under-23s football now. I think now is the time. Get him some first-team football and see how well he can progress. And, you know, if he gets the right loan move behind him, then who knows how good he could be. You know, he, he, he is... He is looking like a really, really good prospect at the minute to me. It's an interesting avenue going to be this summer as well. You know, we John Joe Kenny, really successful spell. Uh, Schalke, Fraser Ormby had, had mixed fortunes at a court strike. But, you know, there was interest in Benny Beningram. I think it was Norway. Uh, Ryan Astley, some interest as well from Belgium. Uh, and I think even Greta Stanton, the, the, you know, one of Marcel Brands' chief scouts, admitted, you know, now that Everton have these tools such as why scouts European loans could be much more prevalent, especially with Marcel Brands's contacts. Could that be an exciting avenue again? You know, Everton have exploited it pretty well with John Joe Kenny this season. Do you think we might see more lads going out to leagues in, in Europe, which previously we haven't really seen at, at Everton? Well, absolutely. I think it, it definitely does create an exciting new avenue. And, you know, we're seeing completely the benefits with John Joe Kenny. I, th- I think yeah, as long as you find the right loan club, then it, yeah. it it's... That that is that is the best avenue for our young players, you know, whether that be, you know, in the lower leagues of England or whether that be, you know, in, in a set league abroad. So, you know, I think maybe just scouting these different types of European leagues, it just opens us up to a whole realm of clubs that are pot- potentially possible for loan moves. And, you know, as you've mentioned there, there is going to be some interest in the under-23s and, you know, it almost seems like it's going to be another sort of transitional season for Unzi because he's going to see so many of his you know important players this season you know Lewis Gibson obviously impressing out on loan of Fleetwood Town don't know whether he's going to get another loan or whether he might step up into the first team you know Morgan Feeney's been a solid player for Unzi for such a long time it'd be interesting to see what happens in his future you know the likes of Adenner and Astley as you say he's got interest in him you know it could be you know we've had another transitional period for the under-23s this year where to rebuild from his double winning side of 2018-19. You know, it, it could be the case that he has to rebuild again. And, you know, that might that might become the new normal almost for the under-23s. It's almost a conveyor belt of, you know, get these lads in, give them the experience, get them out on loan perhaps and see see how well they can develop. Preno, knowing, knowing Umzi, do, do you feel like he's the, 
the kind of character who'd be excited by that next season, maybe starting with a few younger lads that he's been used to over the last few years and, and trying to push them on into the field. I know when me and Phil spoke to him at the start of this year, you know, he said that he's not interested in building lads to go out to end up playing it. You know, with all respect, lower leagues club, he wants to build Everton players. Do you think he'll be excited by a, as Adam's pointing out, a fresh challenge next season? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about uh, the start of, you know, so restart of Premier League football again. Who knows when under 23 football is going to restart again? And that could be months and months and months away. Um, so that puts him a major obstacle in his block, in his path straight away. Yeah, I mean, he, he wants to produce footballers who are good enough to play for Everton Football Club. And if part yeah. of that involves, um, you know, sort of sending them out on loan to get them to a certain level, as players have done famously in the past, you know, Seamus Coleman, Leon Osman, uh, all benefited, you know, sort of very, very well from loan moves uh, elsewhere. Fair enough. I was quite interested to listen to the stuff you're saying about, um, you know, sort of loan moves abroad. And, uh, you know, so how that could become a really, you know, so impressive option nowadays. I mean, in the past, there was always this massive difference between Premier League football and football on the continent. And it is still different. You know, the games are still, you know, a bit more intense, a bit more hurly-burly. But the, the differences have blurred, not quite as stark as it was, you know, so maybe 10, 20 years ago. Uh, so the opportunity for players to go abroad perform well as John Joe Kenny has done at Schalke and then come back into the Premier League, you know, so uh, are growing all the time. And so, yeah, that's a really, you know, so intriguing one that, you know, so that could be something we see more and more of in the future. I mean, this weekend, I'm actually looking forward to sitting down and watching the, what do they call it, the Revier Derby, uh, you know, the <laughs> Derby, because uh, Jaden Sancho, of course, is going to be up against him in that game, you know, so that'll be like a real test. So it, it could be good. But this is a match that's normally played in front of, I think, Borussia's home gate to get 80,000 fans. Yeah. There's, going to be, there's going to be nobody in there. So it's going to be like quite a surreal atmosphere. And it'll give us like a little you know, sort of sneak preview of maybe what you know, the Premier League could look like when that returns. I just hope it all passes by you know, sort of problem-free. You know, so and they do get the game you know, sort of played to a conclusion with no issues, you know, so no injuries you know, so that would require you know, some medical treatment that you know, could... You know, uh, prompt criticism. So, you know, so fingers crossed it all goes off and that John Joe Kenny has an absolute stormer. <laughs> That's a good Adam, there. Adam you've, you've had a soft spot for Borussia Dortmund even before all this. Will you have your yeah. Dortmund top on Saturday supporting them staunchly? Yeah, I've got a bit of stick for that. <laughs> Yesterday. Because of, yeah, because obviously Everton fans uh, have quite the affinity to Schalke, you know, being the Royal Blues and you know, okay. the, the relationship between Dortmund and Schalke and Schalke seem to be the one that are that are closer to Everton. But I, I fell in love with the, the kind of football Borussia Dortmund played when they got to that Champions League final and they played against Bayern Munich and obviously lost. But like their road to that final just made me fall in love with them for all like the football and reasons. And then but late much later on I realised that the you know you know they sing you'll never walk alone and stuff like that. But it was a bit too it was a bit too late for me to uh, to renounce at that point so uh, yeah I'll be supporting Dortmund this weekend and obviously we, we'd usually finish a Friday podcast with a scorecast for Everton Bournemouth it would have been this weekend but we can't do that obviously so a little bit of fun uh, I don't think I explained this too well before pod so bear with me on it but we are talking uh, this week on social media Richard messaged Romelu Lukaku saying come back to Everton and they could have been teammates so what two, what two players, lads, or, or might even be more uh, from Everton teams in the past that never got the chance to play together? Would you have loved to see turning out in the same Everton team? But the one uh, little factor to it is you've got to have seen these players play. Uh, 
personally at Goodison Park or wherever you've seen them play. Preno, I'll start with you. Well, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> I, I was just going to throw in the obvious one, it'd be Dixie Dean and Dave Thomas. But uh, I, you know, despite my, you know, so elderly status on the sports desk, I certainly didn't see Dixie playing as Brian. So, uh, I mean, Dave Thomas was just such a great winger, um, you know, so for traditional centre-forwards, obviously Bob Latchford had his most successful seasons playing with him on the wing. So, possibly Sharpie, you know, so alongside Davey Thomas. Yeah. But having said that, Sharpie got delivery anyway from Kevin Sheedy and Trevor Stevens, so he didn't really suffer in that respect. Um... Go to Adam, and I'll come back to me. <laughs> Go to Adam. I'll think. I'll think uh, long and hard about this. Probably. Thankfully, I've had mine in my head. Uh, obviously, my my years supporting Everton is a lot less than Preno's, so it kind of <laughs> limits my options a little bit. But uh, I'd love to see Arteta and Lukaku playing together. Personally, I thought like, especially when Arteta was playing on the wing in his first few years at Everton, I like. I just fell fell in love with the way he played football. You know, some of his deliveries were absolutely incredible, and his creativity that he brought to the team was was so different. And you know, just to be able to have, imagine if we had Romelu Lukaku on the end. You know, imagine if David Moyes had had Romelu Lukaku up front. You know, in, in his in his prime, like it could, it could have been so different. So yeah, I, I'd loved Arteta and Lukaku personally. I'm I'm going to go back a little bit further. I think. Um... And it's a bit of a strange one, really, because the, the two did play together. Uh, I think that one season he had at Everton was so successful. And, you know, so Everton sold him unnecessarily. Uh, you know, the arguments you can go on forever and ever about you know, why they didn't, why they didn't. I just think Gary Lineker, when he came back uh, to Goodison Park, when he came back to English football in 1989, I think it was, and Everton hadn't put, you know, a release clause you know, so in his in his contract, so he ended up signing for Tottenham. If he'd have come back to Everton, uh, 1989, uh, it was an area where the club was in a great deal of change then. Uh, but, you know, we had Tony Cotty at the club then, another arch goal scorer. No, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have worked together, forget that one. I just wanted to see Gary Lineker Lin- back at the club uh, at Everton, re- restoring that partnership, that relationship he had with Kevin Sheedy, with Trevor Stephen. They hadn't left the club quite at that stage. Uh, it's not really... You caught me on the hop with that question, so uh, I'm stumbling around. Um, in more recent years, no, I, I was trying to think of a Wayne Rooney one, a Wayne Rooney partnership that we were denied. Uh, but you know, he, he was at the club at a time when you know, so he, he forged partnerships. Everybody played him because he was that good. Um, Dave Thomas with Romelu Lukaku. Lukaku was good enough to, you know, sort of benefit, benefit from anything. A lot better in the air than he was given credit for. Throw Dave Thomas back in the mix again, and you've got a potent partnership there. I think Lukaku probably has to get it across the board, doesn't he? Maybe, probably just for the way you've played in this season, I'd probably throw in Lukaku, Calvert-Lewin. If you had Richarlison behind them somewhere or out on the wing, that'd be a pretty, a pretty fearsome trio. But it is generally hard, isn't it, to think of partnerships that kind of missed out on, especially over the last... Well, yeah. that's it because, because partnerships develop, you know, so yeah. almost like spontaneously. Who'd have thought that Stephen Pienaar and Leighton Baines would, you know, so forge such a great partnership? Yeah. Um, you know, so players sometimes just click and you don't know why they click. You know, so Thomas and Latchford was one that you'd hoped would click, but they did, you know, spectacularly. But equally, that side also had the Pedrick Dobson Thomas 
know, sort of trio down the left-hand side. The great team that we started this podcast off with had Reed and Bracewell, that wonderful partnership in the middle. And then Graham Sharp and Adrian Heath were a spectacular partnership up front and uh, until it was basically put by injury. And then Graham Sharp forged another great partnership alongside Andy Gray. What Sharp, he wasn't given a lot of credit for, you know, so a lot of the time was how good he was making his partners alongside him look good and play well. I mean, uh, he basically nursemaided Tony Cotty through the first two or three seasons of his Everson career and got, you know, sort of a decent enough partnership going. So sometimes, you know, so players are very good at working those partnerships together. Sometimes they just happen as if by magic. So you can never quite tell sometimes which players are going to hit it off. Sometimes you bring players in and you think they're a match made in heaven and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a difficult one to define. You know, so partnerships sometimes just happen and you never, ever imagine they're going to happen. Well, lads, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed that today. We will be back uh, early next week with Phil Kirkbride, probably resume, uh, resuming hope slash host duties. <laughs> uh, the latest from the Premier League and show any more updates as we move on. But as I said at the start, we hope you're all doing well at home uh, and safe and sound. And thank you very much. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.